Hello, welcome to the Revive for the Journey podcast, where we give you this week's message from Cove Church. We pray that it blesses you and helps you grow deeper in your journey with Christ. Enjoy. Well, hello, Cove Church. So great to be with you again today. Um, I have this thought for you. Um, I don't know if it is unique to us in this time in history, or if this sort of thing has appeared multiple times throughout the human experience. But my sense from people right now in the world is that it seems like, it feels like the world seems to be struggling in greater ways than it did before. Um, There have always obviously been struggles, but there is a sense that they've been kind of amplified in this time. Whether it's confusion, or division, or despair, or anxiety, it feels like all of those things are kind of heightened, that they're increased, that they're harder to ignore. Now, to those who trust in the biblical narrative, this shouldn't come as a surprise to us. The grand story of Scripture seems to reveal that as far as humanity goes, it kind of gets worse prior to getting better with the return of Jesus. The world seems to be winding down when you read the story of Scripture. But what we don't know is whether or not what we feel today is part of that last chapter of human existence, or if there's some even tougher chapters yet to come. Now, that could be a bit discouraging, right? If it wasn't for another truth of Scripture that can and should give us great hope. And that truth being that regardless of what is happening in our world, we can still experience a thriving, a flourishing life because Jesus has overcome the world. I'm reminded of of a scripture that was written to the children of Israel who found themselves exiled in Babylon, living in a culture that did not share their worldview, that did, did not understand their love of God, written to a people who felt in many ways that they had lost their voice, that they had lost their influence, and they were starting to lose their hope. And they're exhorted with this directive from God through the prophet Jeremiah. It's Jeremiah 29, 4-7. is what it says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. That word for welfare there is the word shalom. Other translations use the word peace. Shalom is peace and welfare, but it is also so much more. Shalom is about the thriving, the wholeness, the flourishing brought about by the presence of God. It's God's goodness expressed in us and to our world. And this is such good news because of this. Instead of being changed by what the world brings to us, shalom means we can change the world by what God brings through us. If there is a posture that would help us navigate these times, I think it's this. Pray for the welfare, the shalom of our community. For as things go well for them, things go well for us. Grow gardens, get married, flourish, 
even if you find yourself in the rocky soil of a confusing world. We don't have to be tied to the pain of this world because as Christ followers, we are citizens of another kingdom. We're just passing through here. And as such, we can be living examples of what it means to flourish amidst adversity. Here's an example. Who out there has heard of this plant or you know what this plant is? Maybe you guessed it, that is Edelweiss, made famous in the song from The Sound of Music, known by many in Germany and Austria and elsewhere because of its ability to thrive amidst adversity. That plant can make its home amidst the rockiest and most rugged of landscapes, bringing beauty to elevations as high as 10,000 feet. It became a symbol of resiliency to the point where suitors would actually go on dangerous hikes to find it so they could go back with it to their loved ones with this symbol of a love that will weather any environment. That is the kind of flourishing that God invites us to. Flourishing means to thrive, to grow well, or develop in a healthy and vigorous way. For some, it can be seen when a person kind of blossoms or succeeds in life. It can refer to the sense of being one's, in one's prime or, or things that are abundant. It also means to make dramatic sweeping gestures, a flourish, which is a lot of fun. But at its core, to flourish is what God wants for each one of us. And that is the focus of the series that we begin today. This first message will discuss what it looks like to lead a flourishing life. And to gain some insight, we're going to look at a portion of Psalm 115. This, this psalm is part of the Egyptian Hallel. These are psalms or songs that would be sung at Passover. Likely, this psalm would have been among those sung by Jesus and the disciples on the night he was betrayed. The night before he was crucified, the night we refer to when we speak of communion, they would have sung this song that was all about God's flourishing. And so, in this psalm, we see some of God's building blocks regarding what it means to live a flourishing life. And the first thing I'd point out is this. We flourish when we rely on God's help. Psalm 115, starting verse 9, let's read it together. Big voices, go. All you Israelites, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. First off, let me just point out that uh, it's two weeks in a row at our church that we have a scripture with my name in it. <laughs> Not on purpose. Uh, my parents weren't even thinking biblical when they named me. They didn't know if it was going to be a boy or a girl, so they picked a name beforehand that could go with either one. That's why I was named Aaron. Uh, but for some reason, we just in this season keep running into these Aaron passages. No strategy on my end regarding that. Uh, you see the name in scripture because Aaron was the first high priest. So that's why you see that in Israel. This psalm is so important because it opens up the backstory, the foundation of our flourishing. And that foundation is nothing short of a complete reliance on God. 
This is the hidden gem that lies within the flourishing life. This is the framework inside the superstructure. This is the invisible support that makes the visible possible. Now here's an example of what I mean. This piece of art is located in the Storm King Art Center in Windsor, New York. It accomplishes what looks to be a physics-defying feat. How does it do that? Because there is an unseen counterweight, set of counterweights, that go beneath it, underground, to support it. One of the things that happens when we encounter a person's life that seems to be flourishing. And I'm not talking about wealth necessarily when I say that, or worldly success or power. I'm talking about that rare person that seems to walk in the fullness of the design of their creator. What is unseen in that person's life, what is underground, is this formidable, undeniable reliance on God for their hope and strength. Even though we can't see it, the reliance, that reliance is what allows their life to have the amazing impact that it does. There are some people who seem to live lives that just defy gravity, they defy physics, they defy what makes sense to us. And it's because of what's underground in their life. I think of Corey Ten Boom, who was living in Holland during the Nazi occupation. Her family secretly housed Jews to protect them. Her family was arrested and ultimately she was taken to a concentration camp along with her sister. Corey was the only one who would survive the atrocities there. After her release, she ended up traveling the world and telling of the tragedies that she endured, but also of the redeeming grace of God. In her book, The Hiding Place, she tells this story, and this is her story in her own words. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence and in silence collected their wraps and in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform with a visored cap and its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man, I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. The place was Ravensbrook, and the man who was making his way forward had been a guard, one of the most cruel guards. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. I fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How, how could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop that swung from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. 
You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. He was saying, I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fräulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I know that. But still, I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I, I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one outstretched to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started at my shoulder, raced down my arm, and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, I realized it was not my love. I had tried, and I did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit, as recorded in Romans 5. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given unto us. Corrie ten Boom is an example of a life where you see the end result, this dynamic, powerful, impossible grace, but what we cannot see is its source, the structure beneath it, what's underground. And that source is what this psalm points us to, a complete reliance on God as our help and our shield the one who strengthens us when we are weak and protects us where we are vulnerable. This is the foundation of the flourishing life, a reliance upon nothing but the living God as the answer to my pain. But even in saying that, like you, I know how easy it can be to say I rely on God, but in truth I rely on myself. Previous sections of this Psalm mentioned that very thing, saying there are those who trust in stuff that isn't God, but that's not to be us. We trust in the God who has met us, who has changed us, who has shown up in our lives because we flourish when we rely on God's help. That's the first thing. Secondly, I'd say this, we flourish when we believe God's promise. Let's continue, continue the passage, Psalm 115, verse 12. Big voices, go. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people, Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. This is all about the promise of what God will do when we believe him. 
Our response of reliance engages God's response of remembrance. And, and I don't mean it as though somehow it's like God forgot about us, like God's around, suddenly he looks over and goes, oh, are you still here? It, it, that's not what this is saying. What I mean is this. When I posture myself in a place of reliance on Jesus, Jesus can then freely express the fullness of his promises to me. This is tied to the miracle and the curse of our own autonomy, the freedom of choice and free will that God gave to human beings. That God wanted this relationship of love with his children. And for that love to be real, God had to give us the ability to choose to love God or to choose not to. Without that ability to choose, we would just be slaves, just pre-programmed to love, pre-programmed to worship. It wouldn't be real. No choice, no option, no personal volition. God didn't want that kind of relationship, so he gave us the freedom to choose. To choose to say yes to relationship with God or choose to say no. And sadly, we've taken that ability to choose and made really bad decisions ever since. But the flourishing life makes the decision that God always wants us to make, to choose to believe the promises of God. See, what we believe matters. It affects how we go about our life. It defines a lot of what we do. Here's an example. It might end up being TMI, but we're friends, so I'm going to go with you uh, on this one. I think this has something to do with my upbringing, but somehow along the way growing up, um, I developed this idea that, or this thought that, that having like soft hands or soft feet uh, didn't match what I perceived to be like a masculine way of being. Like if you had like soft hands, soft feet, like that's not real masculine. And I know it's silly, but that was the prevailing idea for me. To be, to be manly was to have rough and calloused hands and feet that could like walk on glass and hot coals. That, that, was, that was tough, right? The thicker the calluses, the tougher the guy. That, that was just the way I saw myself. So for years... Paula would be putting lotion on her hands and feet, and she'd say, do you want some? I'd be like, no, no, man, I don't want that stuff. Keep that away from me, you know? I, 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 I want people to, like, when they shake my hand, be like, whoa, that, that guy's done some work. You know, it's, it's rough. That's tough. I'm 50 years old. This is how I've always thought. And never have I put lotion on my feet in particular. And I was proud of that. I thought that was great. Manly, tough feet. But one of the more recent effects of that is that when I sleep, I move my feet and I've begun to slice through my sheets. <laughs> and here's how messed up my belief has been around that. Because some part of me in seeing me slice through the sheets was like, that is cool. I slice up sheets. I'm like Wolverine. I mean, man, what's tougher than that? I mean, that's awesome. And it's really cool until you have to buy new sheets. And then it's not cool anymore. Like, wow, this is expensive. This is, is not that great. And Paula all along was like, it was never that great, by the way. And so after doing that the last couple of times, I'm beginning to rethink my love of tough, calloused feet. In fact, a friend recently gave me some lotion, which I've been putting on my feet, I'll have you know. And I'm becoming well, at least my feet, are becoming increasingly smooth and supple. Now, all of that story was encapsulated around a flawed belief, changed how I behaved. 
uh, a flawed belief or, uh, around what I thought to be tough or manly or something silly like that. But what it reveals is the power of our belief. That our belief, how it affects us. And if we are to live a flourishing life, we must find ourselves living out the most powerful belief of all, and it's this, a belief in the promises of God. A belief in the promises of God. That even in the moments when it feels like God is not moving, we believe God still will. That even in those seasons where it seems like the enemy is so loud and so menacing, we, be we believe that God will still have the last word. And even in the places of our life where it feels like there's not enough and there's no way out, we believe in the God who makes a way where there is no way. The flourishing life depends on the answer to this question amidst whatever trial you're going through. What do you believe about God? Because God is inviting each of us to believe in his promises. We flourish when we believe in God's promises. That's the second thing. Here's the last thing. We flourish when we receive God's blessing. Let's finish out this psalm. Verse 14, 15. Big voices go. May the Lord cause you to flourish both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Here is the outcome of relying on God's help and believing in God's promises. It's discovering what has been God's goal for us all along, that God would cause us to flourish, to enable the flourishing life, that we would be blessed by the maker of heaven and earth, realizing that more than anything else, God wants to see this happen in our lives. That we would be reminded again that God is good and that God wants that good for you. But the question is this, do we believe that? I mean, really, do we believe that? Because it seems like if I truly believe that God was absolutely good, then I would have no problem doing what God says and living how God invites me to live. But I've had many times in my life that I have chosen a way that God clearly said is not the best, and in choosing that, I have really said, God, you may be good, but you're not as good as me. Your goodness seems to have some gaps, God, some limits, some misunderstandings. Maybe you're just not up to speed on some stuff. So I will take over and I'll fill in because obviously God's good isn't as good as my good. <laughs> and this is really the starting place of sin, isn't it? It's believing that God isn't fully good. Because if God was fully good, he would only ask me to do stuff that sounds good to me, right? <laughs> stuff that makes sense to me in that moment. And yet wisdom would remind us that God's ways are always higher and that God sees not just temporary good, but eternal good. Think of it in this way. For those of you that have maybe been in dating relationships, and I think back to folks that I dated it's a long time ago now, back when I was in the dating game, but... Um, you know, when I think of those relationships, lots of those folks are, are nice people. But uh, as, I, as I see time go on with a few people that I dated, um, it starts to make me super glad that that relationship didn't go the distance. 
<laughs> like there's a high likelihood with, with those folks that I would probably have ended up on the bottom of a lake or wishing I was there. Um, but at the time, they were so great, you know, they, they, were, they were so awesome. And I was like, God, why didn't you let us stay together? And the breakup was so hard. And I'm listening to all the breakup songs, unbreak my heart, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm never going to dance again, you know, all, all that stuff. It was so bad at the time, but it was because God is so good that God will protect us from us. Often God's goodness is best understood in the rearview mirror of our lives. So in those moments where, where I don't understand God's goodness, we must then meet God with two things, trust and time. Trust and time. When we don't understand what God's doing, we, we meet God with trust and time. Foundation, the foundational understanding for whatever you're walking through that, that, that wants to make you trust your way over God's way is to know beyond anything else that God is good. And God's goodness will always be better than your goodness. God wants you to flourish. God wants to bless you. The question is this. Will God find you blessable, findable? Because we flourish when we receive God's blessing. I'll wrap up with this. John 10.10, 10, uh, this passage is a great passage. It says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Those are the words of Jesus. Among the most important foundations to our walk with Jesus is this understanding. God wants to give to us, not take from us. But there is a real enemy that will try to say the same thing to us. From the garden in the book of Genesis, the tactic has not changed. The enemy approaches us and says, did God really say that? Oh, I don't think God should have, should have asked you to do that. And we start to listen. And the result is this. Instead of flourishing and relying and believing, we flounder in this horrible in-between of saying we trust God, but living to trust ourselves. And God wants more for us. And God wants more for you. God doesn't just want you to squeak by. God wants you to shine. So what has to change in your relationship with God to see that happen? We have an enemy that wants to steal and kill and destroy. But we have a God who promises life and life to the full. That God wants you to flourish. And if you'd say yes, there is no limit to what God can bring about. So my encouragement is this. God wants you to flourish. So say yes. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. To stay connected with all things Cove Church, visit our website, covechurchpnw.com or on all social media platforms at Cove Church PNW. We'll see you next time.